are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. All right, so tonight uh, we are focusing specifically on our church's mission, our church's mission. Some of you have probably, this might feel like nothing new. Some of you might feel like this is brand new, but for all of us, wherever you're at, I do ask that you would take particular time tonight to lean in and really ask yourself some critical questions uh, for your own heart's sake and for the good of our church. Um. We're part of the Acts 29 network. Some of you may have known that. Some of you don't, but it's kind of a funny phrase. If you try to look for Acts 29, you won't find it in your Bible, right? We preached through the the book of Acts, uh, and we got all the way to chapter 28, and we stopped. And it's a good place to stop because there is no Acts 29. We are Acts 29, as they would say, right? If we are in the network, you're like, we are Acts 29, right? The church is continuing on in its mission. What happened in the New Testament church is happening with kind of an ellipses of Acts 28, and then it's carried on here even to churches like ours in 2023 in Pataskala slash Blacklick, Ohio, wherever we're at. This is the New Testament church rolling on. And I had you turn to Matthew 28, 18 through, 9, uh, 18 through 20. This is a text you know, but I want you to see specifically how we phrase up our own mission our own mission statement, if you will, and how it flows directly from what Jesus said going back to his ascension, uh, right before his ascension, uh, to the disciples here in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Garrett, I don't think I have... Oh, found it. Never mind. I got you. You got me. You're already there. Good job. Um, I. <laughs> this was a, a, funny, a funny little moment uh, back in the day um, some of you know I've done some like church planting training with particular networks that I'm a part of, and I even did some church planting stuff in, in seminary. And then, of course, at the various church stops I've been in, there's been conversations about church planting. Uh, I did an internship specifically geared with church planting in mind with the future of Good Shepherd Bible Church at the end of it. Um, and so there were assessments and there were all sorts of uh, things in place, both uh, very strategic and concrete and also things kind of loose and organic that helped us process what Good Shepherd Bible Church was all about. And I remember, especially early on in that stage, uh, coming to grips with this idea of mission or missionality. 
and what it meant. And because all the cool kids were church planting at that time, because church planting is the cool thing to do, right? Only cool people church plant, right? Only cool people church plant, right? Right? Like cool people church plant. No, it's a. It is funny how church planting and a sort of like swagginess factor kind of comes into play. It's kind of part of the scene a little bit. And one of the things that uh, I used to kind of get like maybe artificially amped up about is this idea of missionality. And they would start talking about like, hey, you know, we got to be missional church plants. And so, what's your mission? And we would just throw around the word of like mission or missionality, and it would kind of be this like bro fest of like yeah we are the dudes we are bringing the mission we are missional we are constantly in mission and and that was kind of a buzzword thrown around and it used to kind of again almost artificially like ramp me up of like oh yeah 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 yeah. i'm i'm on mission and in thinking through like what the church is all about i used to be confronted with like what's your church's mission as if to say like what are you guys going to do Kind of, if I could say it this way, there was almost a little bit of like, what's the brand of the church? What's the what what's the kind of rallying cry behind the church? What's going to be your main focus? What kind of flags are you going to wave? What kind of ideas are you going to champion? What kind of things in your community are you going to conquer? And those were all, I think, very well-intended things thrown around, but it kind of worked up in me of like a, a little bit of a panic or an anxiety because I was like, well, I... Man, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. And maybe I, I got to get to know my community a lot more. And I got to get to know my, my people a lot more. And man, I've got a lot of work to do to make sure that this, that this happens. And we got to have something to do. So I opened up my Bible and I'm like, uh, God, I, I'm, I'm, I need a kind of a verse that I can kind of slap onto our mission statement that we can like put on a t-shirt because we... We got to be missional and we got to be doing stuff and we got to be active and God help me out. And as I did more study on this idea of mission, what I what I realized was actually something quite different. That there's really only one mission of the church. There are no multiple things that the church ought to be about. There are no kind of like other flags to wave or t-shirts to wear. There's only one thing that wakes the church up in the morning. There's only one very simple idea that Jesus said, this is what you are to be doing. And when I started to come to grips with the reality of mission, I realized that the church universal is all about the same mission, which actually gave me a little bit of comfort. Because I was like, oh, we're not... We, in our little church, in our little church expression, we are not like God's gift to the kingdom. We are not the movers and shakers that's going to impact the entire cosmos, right? We are not the thing that God is doing. We are one of a million things that God's doing in the exact same way. And sure, I think what I was uh, hearing were maybe like some contextualizations of the mission, right? It ought to look particular in your context, okay? Uh, Probably for our context, um, like plaid shirts work really well because we're close to like farms, right? And that's just like, you gotta, you know, probably roll up your sleeves and be hardworking. And that's just probably where we're at. And so our, our context should shape what it sounds like or how it gets across. But the reality is the mission is the same. And this was quite a humbling experience because, again, 
It didn't make us movers and shakers. It didn't turn us into the cool kids. It kind of turned us into just normal, ordinary Christians. And what I've actually found was like some great hope in that. And so I wonder, are you on board with this one idea? Maybe you're here for multiple other things. Maybe you don't know the one thing Jesus said. But wherever you're at today, I'm asking that you would lean into the mission that God has given us as a church, a little C church, but also a little C church that's part of the big mission that God's doing in the capital C church, the big church, the global church. The reality is this mission is not complicated. Let me say this. The mission is complex. It's not easy. But it's not complicated. We'll see here in a little bit. Anybody can do this. Anybody can be a part of this. The goal, the the target, the main mission, the thing that God is asking us to do, Christ is asking us to do, comes right out of verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. In a cross-reference with Mark 16, uh, same time, same uh, exact event, but Mark says it a little bit differently or maybe even wraps it up in some kind of different package with a different kind of emphasis. Uh, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, this is Mark 16:15, and Jesus said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all people. So all nations are involved. All nations are the target of the mission. But then he kind of says two things, which I actually think are just the interchangeableness of the same idea. One is kind of the, the, the what and one's kind of the how. He says, make disciples, or he says, preach the gospel. Again, interchangeable here from the same idea, but maybe one's the what we are doing and one's the how we are doing it. One is we are whatting, making disciples the how by preaching the gospel. So you'll notice in our church's mission statement, we make that very clear. Our mission is to make disciples by proclaiming the gospel. And my friends, that is it. That is it. That is the church's mission. That's the church's one thing to wake us up. It's the it's the exact thing that we are to be doing. And really, if I can say it this way, nothing else. It's the hyper-focus, the laser focus of the church. The reality is Jesus told this to the church that he wanted them to do it, but Jesus himself modeled this very thing. This is what Jesus was doing in his earthly ministry. He was gathering and making disciples. Looked like a failed idea didn't work out so well, and then it worked well at the end. But it was not really the greatest project going. But you'll see the mission continued. How did Jesus make disciples? Well, number one, he declared the gospel. He got right out of the gate in his public ministry, declaring the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. So he would say things like this, repent and believe the gospel. And he himself, the embodiment of this kingdom, would say, Come to me. Hear of me. Hear my word. I have words from the Father. Listen to me. But he didn't just declare the gospel. He then began to demonstrate the gospel. And this is what the signs and the miracles were all about. Everything that Jesus did and everything that he taught was there to demonstrate the realities of the gospel. 
And so as we talked about in the book of Acts, the gospel of Luke, Luke is writing the book of Acts, but he talks about his former book, and he talks about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So those are things that Jesus began to do and teach. But in the book of Acts, I'm writing to you all the things that Jesus continues to do and teach. The same thing that Jesus did on his earthly ministry, he's doing in his heavenly ministry in the book of Acts, in the New Testament church. And my friend, this is no different today. Jesus continues his New Testament church ministry today, his kingdom building ministry today. But here's the thing. He has always chosen to use disciples. He has always chosen to use people. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, both in Jesus' ministry, he gets early on, he gets right quick to gathering disciples to himself. And then he starts handing out responsibilities. He says, take this and go, take this and go, take this and go. You've got to figure Jesus as Lord and creator and sustainer of all things could have handled this job perfectly himself, but he didn't choose to do that. He chose to use disciples. So he began to gather them, delegate kingdom tasks, and kind of put things on their shoulders that they couldn't handle. Early on in Acts 1, Jesus begins speaking about the kingdom. And finally, in the book of Acts, at the end of Acts, Acts 28, Paul is seen there proclaiming the kingdom of God. And it shows you a model for what the New Testament church is to be about. The reality is, disciples make disciples by proclaiming the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. I'll say that again. Disciples make disciples by proclaiming the gospel that Jesus proclaimed, both in, in word but also in demonstration. And so we need to look at the fact that it's not merely about the content of our speech, or the content of what we proclaim, but I also think it's important that we look at the form in which it came. The gospel was given to us in the form of a personal promise. In the form of a personal promise. God came to us in the person and work of Christ, and he didn't have conditions. He didn't say if or if then. He didn't come to you with question marks and say, it is finished? Maybe? What do you think? Maybe? He came to us in the person of Jesus Christ and made declarative statements to us. This is what this idea of preaching is all about. I do see a New Testament distinction between this idea of preaching and teaching. In other words, I think there's a difference between talking about the gospel and actually getting around to declaring it to somebody who actually needs it. There's a difference between talking about it and actually doing the speech act work of communicating, of declaring in declarative sentences without question marks and conditions to people who need it. This happened yesterday. It was actually kind of a, a, a funny moment. Not funny. It was actually kind of embarrassing, but then turned funny kind of. Just one of those shocking moments around the dinner table um, with one of my kids who will go nameless. But we were talking about family life things, just how our family tends to act. And in the middle of this whole thing, he decided to throw haymakers, I guess. I just It's the only way I took it. He goes, Daddy, you don't say I love you as much as Mommy does. I was like, 
Thanks, bro. I really was not anticipating that. Wow, that's very insightful. Great. Now, I will admit to you that that's, that's true. All right, that is true. And there's some deep psychological issues that are at work at this level, right? So now I have to try to explain to my kid, right? Like, I, all right, pause. I, I do love you, okay? Let me just say that. Let me just clear the air, all right? I love you. That wasn't, you know, available and ready by the food that you're eating. Thank you very much. I love you. I care deeply for you, right? But also, yes, there is a true reality that mommy loves to say, I love you, doesn't she, right? She loves to give you hugs and kisses. And then I went into, like, the background of, like, you know, we were raised in two different homes. And the reality is, I didn't really grow up in a home where we were, like, warm and fuzzy, right? I, we, just, we just weren't. Now, the reality is, I never once at any time questioned my parents' love for me. In fact, I don't even think that idea would have ever crossed my mind. I think I, like, probably would have slapped myself if, like, I ever thought that, like, you fool? Like, come on, man. Like, I had a great childhood and a great home, right? My parents deeply cared for us. And they cared for us in ways that were very, very tangible. And I loved my home. But, like, again, it was never really directly communicated to me all the time, this idea of, like, I love you. Like, how are your feelings today? Right? Like, it just wasn't – that's not how we were, right? And so hugs and kisses weren't just, like, around, okay? They weren't just, like, ready – I mean, I could have asked my mom for a hug and a kiss. She would have given to me. My mom wasn't, like – in a not a bad situation, but you know what I'm saying. Those of you who have been grown up in a warm and not uh, not in a warm and fuzzy house, you know what I'm saying. But my wife grew up in a house where it was like to end a phone call. It's a round of like fighting of who loves each other more, and it's kind of it's kind of gross at some point. And I'm like, at some point you just stop because like it doesn't mean like anything like it used to, right? You you ended the com- you tried to end the conversation three minutes ago when you said I love you. But now it's like, I love you more. And then it's like, well, I love you most. And it's like, guys, we get it. We all love each other, right? All of us love. And you know what? All of us probably love equally. Like, there's no winning. Like, we don't get trophies at the end of this, all right? Just, anyway, that's not how I grew up. And so because Nikki was raised one way and because I was raised another way, now I have to explain to my child the psychological developments that exist in his home. And so what I had to do is I had to talk about my love to him, right? I had to talk about it. But it was actually really insightful because at the end, I actually, to clear the air, I actually had to do something with my speech to make it very clear to him that I really do love him. So I asked rounds of questions to him about like, buddy, how do you think daddy likes to communicate love to you? And so we went round and round, playing video games, wrestling, whatever it was, right? Playing soccer outside, all these things, okay? And I said, and buddy, I just want to tell you real quick, I love you so much. I actually had to get busy, not just talking about my love for him, but I actually had to get busy doing the work with my speech in a promissory way to say, buddy, I love you. Okay, and it was a good reminder for me. I need to do that way more often, specifically in times where maybe he doesn't feel that as much. I need to communicate that more to him. But my friends, this is exactly what God has done for us. He has come to us in very clear ways, as John said, by his word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father. He came to us with declarative statements, and he said things like from his cross, it is finished. No question marks, no ifs, no buts, no conditions. This is what I mean when we say proclaim the gospel. We not only are responsible for the content of our message, but how that comes across. I have the great responsibility as a pastor to do this often. 
And what's funny is whenever I tell people I'm a pastor, there's always two things, right? Sorry for my language, which inevitably happens. And then they feel like they can just open up and just share whatever is on their heart and mind, which is always surprising, right? (laughs) Never stops being surprising. But I have, on first meetings of people, heard things from people that they have never told anyone else. And I don't know why. I don't know why. I mean, like, maybe I just have the face of a sucker. I'm like, you look like a guy who can handle people's problems. Like, I don't, here I am. All right, what you got? But the reality is I have a responsibility at that moment because a lot of people share things with me, almost daring me to say something from God. Almost kind of baiting, I wonder if God would have anything to say to this dark thing that I've never told anybody about. And I think there's kind of two different ways they feel like it's going to go. Number one, you can just like lay on the judgment that I know is coming. I'm ready for the boom. I've been preparing for it my whole life. But maybe it won't be so bad from you as it will be from God. Or maybe I'll hear something I'm not ever going to hear anywhere else. And so what do I do when I hear someone's deep, dark secret that can't be repeated? I say the only thing I can say as a preacher of the gospel. I tell them things that it's not my news, but it's news that God has asked me to share. So I look at them square in the eye and say, can I tell you something that God wants you to hear? On account of Christ, that sin that you can't forget, he can't remember, and it's forgiven. And if you thought that these, those people were crying during the confession, you should wait for the crying during the absolution, because it's always twice as much. Because again, they're just waiting to hear something that they will never hear. A word from God that's a promise that they thought they would never get. And this is what I mean when I actually talk about proclaiming the gospel. Actually giving something for people, sinners, to believe in. Give them the promises of God in Christ's name. And my friend, the reality is, God has equipped every believer as a priest of God to communicate the gospel in that way. Because you might be able to throw the dart and say, well, like, who made you the, like, the arbiter of forgiveness? It's not my forgiveness. I'm not handing it out on my own. God has asked me to sh- simply share the gospel with you. I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just a priest of his, armed with the word of God, ready to pass out forgiveness to those who need it. Right? 1 John 1, very clear. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Anybody who confesses that sin. So who am I? It's not, it's not my word to hold back. I proclaim it. This is what the apostles said when, when they were asking for boldness. This is what they were asking for. Give me the boldness, not just to say gospel-y things, not just to talk about the gospel, but to have the courage and the boldness to say silly things to sinners who don't deserve it. Like, I know what you feel. I know that guilt you you have. I know that feeling. And I just want you to know that God doesn't feel the same way. That sin's been paid for in his economy. He doesn't hold that sin against you. How do I know that? Because Christ took that punishment on the cross for you. And that's a daring thing to say, isn't it? But this is how the gospel came to us. It's the same gospel that we need to proclaim. It's the for you-ness of the gospel. If the gospel doesn't come to you in a package that has a label on it and it says it's for you, you're not quite hearing the full tone of the gospel. Because again, the gospel doesn't come to you in like for you or an empty tag name where you're wondering, who is this for? 
Who could possibly this? I mean, this looks like a great gift. I just don't know who it's for. The gospel comes to you with your name on it from the hands of Jesus. And it says it's for you. Open it. This is what I mean when we say we proclaim the gospel. We make disciples by proclaiming the gospel boldly. It's the only thing that actually makes disciples. Well, what does it look like? What does it end up looking like when we proclaim the gospel? He gives us three things, and this is kind of where we normally talk about. We normally talk about proclaiming the gospel so that all people believe, grow, and hope in Jesus, right? We hear that all the time. Sorry, this is a little too late for those of you who are note takers. There you go. But you should have this. You can get this right off the website, right? There you go. There you go. What does it actually look like? We preach this gospel so that people will believe. The reason I I like our mission statement, the reason I think it's actually a cool mission statement, even though we probably can't sell like t-shirts off of it because it's not swaggy, right? It's not real swaggy. In the church planning world, they were like looking at me and they're like, this looks like it was just lifted right out of the Bible. And I'm like, yeah, I know. It's kind of boring. It's kind of boring. I know. It's kind of just me. But I think it's what Jesus would have us to be about. And they're like, right on, right on. I'm like, okay, all right. We believe the gospel. We proclaim the gospel for belief. In other words, the gospel is meant for faith. Okay? And what this looks like is this idea of initial conversion or this idea of regeneration. Now, in our circles of broader evangelicalism, there's been this kind of groundswell of like, um, uh, like a, a focus on this particular theological topic of regeneration conversion. And I understand where it comes from. A lot of it's trying to combat kind of an easy believism. Like I've always grown up a Christian. Like my parents are Christian. I was raised Christian. And so it's kind of like if we highlight the idea of regeneration and get some things moving on, like a clarity on regeneration or conversion, that'll keep people from believing like in a Matthew 7 sort of way that I've always been a believer and then they get to heaven and Jesus is like, I never knew you, right? We want to prevent that reality, and so we try to focus on regeneration in particular ways and try to gain some clarity there. I'm all for that. Uh, I think it's great. Regeneration is a theological thing that we need to pay attention to. I think it's very helpful to even talk about it. Um, For some of you, you have like multiple regeneration experiences or conversion experiences. I'm one of those. I was saved like 1,800 times, right? Anybody been baptized more than once? Yep. Okay. Is a lot of it's this almost hyper-focused idea of conversion and regeneration. Though the Bible does talk about regeneration in some kinds of ways, I think it's actually more hidden in this idea of baptism, okay? Which gets a little scary, and I think we have to talk about it. And this is why I think Matthew brings it up, or Jesus brings it up here. Proclaim the gospel to all people, make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, okay? Holy Spirit. He brings up this idea of baptism, but I think it's the first initial step in this idea of faith in the gospel, believing the gospel. Because baptism is all about receiving the promises of God. It's not about you. It's not about primarily about what you are saying to God. It is primarily about what God is saying about you. How do I know this? Number one, because baptism is given by his own authority. This comes to us from verse 19. He says, "All verse, uh, verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me for you to do this. Go make disciples by baptizing people. But he says, it's my authority. It's not yours. I, as a pastor, don't have authority to baptize people in my name. No one's getting baptized in the name of Hunter's sight, praise God, right? You're also not being baptized on your own accord. Justin didn't come to me and just merely say, 
I would like to be baptized merely by Justin's own thinking. The Spirit of God was drawing him to the Spirit's work of baptism, God's work of baptism. Okay, But also, it's in his name. Baptism, we actually speak the name of God. We invoke the name of God, even in the very act itself. We just did this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, recognizing that this authority, the action itself, is not something I'm doing. It's not something he's doing. It's something ultimately God is doing. And then the picture itself also reveals this reality that it's not about me. I am being baptized, or Justin was baptized, into Christ's work. The very picture itself explains that this was Justin being baptized buried or united to Christ's death and being raised like Christ's raising, right? United to Christ's rising. It reflects Christ's work for him more than it reflects his work for Jesus. Now, I do think it does image or say something about what we are doing, but I think primarily it's actually God's pledge to us more than it's our pledge to God. And I think that that's significant. Again, baptism is all about receiving the promises. And if there's anything we can learn from the picture, we can learn that Justin didn't baptize himself, right? I mean, he could have. He has the full strength. He's a grown man. He could have literally just hopped in the tub and just, he could have done it. But he willfully gave himself up to something else. Gave himself up for my arms. And I plunged him in, made sure he was good and fully submerged. We got, that, got him across the line, and then I popped him back up. Right. I mean, he used a little bit of that core work, but we got it done. Right. We got it. We got it done. And ultimately, again, because it's in his name, it's not even me. The, the physical reality, sure, is something. But the deeper spiritual reality is all on God. It's all his. One hundred percent his. The promise given in baptism. This is another commentator. The promise given in baptism is seen in that in which it signifies. The forgiveness of sins, union with Christ, regeneration, sanctification, in short, all of salvation. Baptism is given to God's people whereby they may lay hold of all the blessings of Christ through faith in God's word. That's what it's about. It's God's word given to us that Christ is mine forevermore. And I am plunged into his work to identify with that reality. And so he says, Make disciples by proclaiming the gospel, by dunking them in water into it. Submerge them in the promises of God. If they didn't hear it with their ears, they haven't seen it with their eyes, stick their whole bodies inside and bring them back out. See if that, see if that does anything for the heart to receive that promise by faith. So he says baptize them. This is the idea of initial faith, but also so that people grow in Jesus. And so he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but also teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is this idea of ongoing faith or growing faith, right? There's initial faith, regeneration, pictured by this idea of baptism, signified by this idea of baptism, but also there's this idea of ongoing faith, concurring faith, present faith, a growing kind of faith. We talked about this in our membership, for those of you who have walked through that process before. The whole Christian life is this reality where our need for the gospel continues to grow more and more to us. Our need for Jesus does not get less and less. It's not like we figure out the mechanics of the Christian life and we find ways to live life apart from Jesus more and more. 
We actually see the reality of God's holiness ascending, and therefore it makes our feeling of our own sinfulness descend. We're like, man, I'm more sinful than I thought. This is Paul at the end of his life in ministry. This is Paul in Romans 7, a wretched man that I am. Who's going to save me? That was Paul as a Christian. And the reality of that of that gap between God's holiness and my growing sinfulness is the reality that I need his grace more and more and more throughout my life. If you talk to any old saint who's been around for a long time, been around the block, and they love singing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, right? For those of us who are really good Christians, that kind of wears off at times, doesn't it? I'm like, why? Because we're just, I've got it. I'm doing fine. I mean, Jesus is good. It's fine. It's fine. I need Jesus. I mean, <laughs> can't say I don't need Jesus. That's not great. But the reality is the amazing grace, how sweet the sound, kind of wears off a little bit. And Jesus is saying, proclaim the gospel to people in a way where you teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded them to do. And this only flows from embracing the realities of the gospel. This difference, this distinction between the root of the gospel versus the fruit of the gospel. This is why Jesus would say in John 5, apart from me, you cannot bear fruit. If you are not abiding in the vine, if the root you are believing in, the root you are trusting in, what you are plugged into by faith, if that's not the right branch, you are never going to bear the right kind of fruit. The way to bear proper fruit, make sure you're connected to the vine. Abide in me, he said. And so this reality of don't get the cart before the horse, this is not merely just about mere obedience for the sake of obedience. Jesus is asking them, believe the gospel in a way that actually on the ground of people's lives, set them free from the things that are keeping them from believing the gospel. Help them grow, teach them what it means to grow in the gospel. And so this ongoing teaching of how gospel clarity sets you free from both your unrighteousness and your self-righteousness begins to play out on the ground of people's lives. And there should be this growth in amazing grace, how sweet the sound, because it saved me from this particular sin. Even this week, I found freedom from my sin, both in my unrighteousness. This could be things like anger or lust or anxiety or worry or stealing. Whatever it is, this unrighteousness that we know that things are bad, the gospel has the power to be able to save you functionally from those actual things. Guys, hear me. The gospel has the power to save you from ongoing struggles with lust. It does. And we need to grow in our understanding of the gospel in a way that allows us to experience that freedom. Ladies, the gospel has the ability, the power unto salvation to save you from your anxiety and worry. It has the ability to do that. It is powerful enough to save you from that. We need to understand the gospel functionally in a way that we experience that reality on the ground of our lives. Praise God for that kind of freedom. We are not stuck in our sin. There is actual freedom. I'm not here to say there's perfection. There's not perfection. I promise you there's not perfection. God loves to reveal weaknesses so that we can lean on his strength. Okay, So don't for a second think, I'm going to get better. It's not about you getting better. But there is freedom. There is joy in the gospel. It is real. There's also freedom from our self-righteousness. The, the, the feeling of hiding, right? That we have to hide some sin away. 
There's actual freedom from your hiding. There's freedom from your performance. There's freedom from your exhaustion. There's freedom from these little sub-containers that we have, these sub these containers of sub-righteousness that we keep, right? I have Jesus plus my parenting righteousness, or I have my Jesus plus my po- politics righteousness, or Jesus plus my theology righteousness. I have all these little buckets where I have, like, Jesus plus... Also, man, I'm just the best mom ever because I give my kids, I don't know, uh, gluten-free gummies. That thing? That's not a thing. Gluten gummies don't have gluten. You know what? I, but you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying, right? I'm the best mom ever and got Jesus plus my fill in the blank. And we live life by our own set of rules to establish our own righteousness, to pat ourselves on the back to get us by. My friend, the gospel has the power, enough power to set you free from that unbelievably tough and unbearable burden. You're faking it. That doesn't save you. You fall short in that area too. And it's okay because the gospel truly saves. We need to grow in our understanding of the gospel so that God, by the Spirit, can teach us to observe the things that God has asked us to observe. So proclaim the gospel until that happens. But also, and he didn't leave us without hope, and I'm so thankful. This almost seems like a throwaway phrase in Matthew 28, but I promise you it might just save your soul if you're paying attention because he literally says this at the end of verse 20. It says, and behold. Disciples, look at me. Guys, look at me. I've never left. I know it kind of feels that way sometimes. I know as you read your newspaper, it kind of feels like sometimes I've taken a rain check today. But I promise you, I've never left. I know life spins out of control and your anxiety spins out of control and it feels like I'm nowhere to be found. But look at me, I've never left you. I've always been there. And I will continue to always be there. And no matter how far this goes, no matter to the end of the age, no matter how bleak it gets, we're talking about apocalyptic level of chaos at the level here, to the end of the age. It's, I mean, I don't know what that entails, but I'm thinking like, I don't know, like monsters versus aliens or like uh, walking dead type stuff, right? Until, until the end of the age, he says, I'm with you. Now, how is this possible? John 14 makes it very clear. Jesus said to them, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Not some, not a portion, not a subset, not merely just the things that you and I want or maybe feel like we need. He says, I will bring to you everything I've ever said. Every truth that's ever out there about me, the Spirit of God is going to help you. He's going to bring to remembrance all the things that you've forgotten. And he's going to teach you along the way. And he's in every single one of you. Not one person who has been baptized into Christ is without the Spirit. You have him. He's with you. And the Spirit of Christ is always with us, no matter how it looks. Even the times where we forget, oh, yeah, he's here. He's always with you. The Spirit is reminding you of God's promises for you, but also assuring you of his ongoing work through you. And this is part of the Spirit's work. He uses disciples to proclaim the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. The Spirit is at work to swell up the gospel in our own hearts 
and he is present in each one of us as he is speaking these things to us. And then out of our own lips comes the very words that God has spoken to you by the Spirit, and it lands on somebody else's ears around here, and the Spirit of Christ allows that person to hear the gospel as well. And so the Spirit indwells all of us, bringing to remembrance all the things that he has said to us. It's foolproof. That plan is not going to fail. You can read it, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, that'll work. That'll, that'll do it. If the Spirit's in each one of us, and he puts the word in us, and then by his Spirit, he lets that word fly from our lips onto other people's lips, and then the same thing happens to them, oh, yeah, that works. That does it. That's good. All right, cool. This will, this will go. And not all the other, like, you don't have to worry about all the other stuff, because if you look at the rest of the disciples, they're a mess. And you might say, like, well, I don't have a lot of competence. Well, that's cool, because Jesus never talked once about your competence. He didn't pick the disciples out because of competence. He probably picked them because of their incompetence. And that's such a blessing, isn't it? Thank God for Peter. Amen? Can we get an amen for Peter? But I say that about you, and guess what? You get to say that about me. This is not about competence. We talk about this all the time. God will more than likely use your confession more than he will ever use your competence. And Peter had a lot to confess, didn't he? You and I had a lot to confess. God will use our own brokenness to allow the glory of the grace of Jesus to shine in our hearts as we're open and honest about that stuff. And we only and the cool thing is, I think, is that that only gives us one thing to do. If it's not about our competence, if our competence is blown out of the water, if we are totally insufficient for these things, and the only thing we have is the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us, arming us with the truth of the gospel, ready for it to fly off of our lips, then that means we only have one thing to do. Let it rip. And so my question for you, are you on that mission? And here's what I mean by that. Is the gospel at work in your heart? And I... I know it is, right? Because the Spirit said it will be in your, it will be at work in your heart. He will bring to remembrance. Not might, not could, if you allow it. He said he will. And some of us were kind of being forced to deal with the realities of Jesus in more ways than we're comfortable with, right? He will make it happen, okay? I'm very sure about that. So my question is, how, how is that happening? And then, beyond that, well then who's, who, and specifically here at Good Shepherd Bible Church, who is in the wake of your life? If this is our mission, if this wakes us up tomorrow morning, not your job, not your kids, not your, I don't know, whatever you do, whatever you do. If that stuff's not waking you up, if the only thing waking you up is make disciples by proclaiming the gospel, who is in the wake of your life? As you're driving your boat, who's behind you in your wake saying, I'm following this person as they're following Christ? Again, not following your example because that would be a mess. I'm talking about who's hearing the gospel from you. Who are you teaching to observe all that I have commanded you? Who are you reminding Jesus is with you always to the end of the age? Who are you there with as a person who is indwelt by the Spirit? Who is your presence, the ministry of Christ to that person? Who's in the wake of your life? Who's doing that? And can I encourage you? You say, well, like, I guess I'm not doing it. I guess I'm a failure. Great. Welcome to the club. That's all that Jesus likes to choose. So you can start tomorrow, and that's great. Your sins are already forgiven. So stop beating yourself up. Let's go. Let's just go be about the mission. Embrace this grace, and then go share it. Go be about it. All right.
Mission of Good Shepherd Bible Church, which is the same as all the other churches out there. They might say it a little differently. They might actually be able to sell t-shirts. We probably can't because it's just the Bible. It's to proclaim the gospel so that all people believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Let's pray. So